Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This week, we were offering five conversations from Season 3, Episode 46, our review of the recent NFLD Summit, plus, from the vault, a section from December 2021 looking at the relationship between weight loss related to bariatric surgery and liver fibrosis, and how that might compare to the results we will get from drugs and development. This conversation continues the issue of Hawthorne effects and trial design. Hannes Hochstrom starts by noting we can learn from obesity trials and also from TV shows like Biggest Loser that people regain weight at the end of a trial without continued support, and asks about what kind of support we should expect to provide from dietitians and others. I respond, thinking of comments Louise Campbell might have made, and further discuss the value of engaging real-time feedback like FibroScan as compared to blood test results. Sven notes that the Saint-Franc notes that the issue of lifestyle management in Nash trial has been a significant issue for the liver form and other supportive groups in terms of trial design and also the power calculations that shape trial size. After a couple of comments about trial design and power calculations, Mazin closes the discussion by stating that recent meta-analyses show the placebo rates tend to run around 20% and that these might be the right results to look for from placebo when designing power calculations and trial sizes. For the second straight week, it has been our pleasure and honor to cover a major medical meeting with significant science and policy issues attached. Also, this conversation brought some important voices in Nashville to the podcast for the first time, which is always a good thing. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Sven Frank. The obesity field and diabetes field have looked extensively at weight change and what happens. And there's actually a rather nice study where they examined people that was in the first season of this TV show, Biggest Loser. So they dropped, I don't know how many kilos. And, and then seven years later, everybody goes up. So even if you have dropped 150 kilos, there's something that keeps you to regain that weight. And I still I think that, that has sort of reflects very much how, how our patients with NAFLD and NASH will do. So in the long term, of course, lifestyle changes are essential and we should do what we can to help them but I do think they need something to help them to maintain those effects and there's where a drug comes in because I don't think the healthcare system will be able to manually support people with, with repeated follow-up times etc in this huge patient population. There was actually one abstract at the conference where they compared the efficacy of a very simple support from a dietitian in London I think it was from the Shrokatsis group and just saying that yeah if patients that got supported by the dietitian were uh, much more likely to have a regression of their fibroscan results giving some indication that that they might do better in the long term but you know having a dietitian with continuous support for all of our patients not sure if it's going to be be feasible but so i'm going to play the role of louise for a minute because i know how she would answer this and uh, louise if when you're listening get around listening to this i got it wrong you can you can tell me what the price is one of the reasons she's so fond of fibroscan is that you actually get to give a patient a result and show them a picture when you see them. And her comment is, when you do that, it's surprising how many people were motivated. Somebody in the last diabetes episode said almost exactly the same thing, and that was not Louise because she wasn't in that episode. So if we managed our patients a little differently, it it, it wouldn't solve the whole problem, Hannes, not even half of it. But we could do a lot better than we're doing right now. So I I think the truth is probably somewhere at the intersection, half of one, half of the other. You're for sure right that the patients are interested in those kind of results and that it can be a motivator. Coming back to the issue of the clinical trial, 
miles. I don't think that it is that important. I explain myself a little bit better. The placebo effect is not going to kill the results of a trial if you take it into account properly. It will happen anyhow. If the groups are well calculated and your power is okay, what happens in the placebo group should also happen in the treatment arms. So in the end, you need to take that into account in your power calculation and make sure that your trials are sufficiently powered. But that will not kill the drug if that is properly done. With the liver forum, we have struggled a lot with how to have lifestyle modification. How should we do that in a clinical trial for NASH? And it was a whole journey to come to a consensus because learning, as Hannah said, from the obesity field or the diabetes field, you could think of doing a lead-in or have something standardized implicated in the trial. Because ideally, you start a clinical NASH trial with patients that have gone through all that lifestyle modification, education upfront. Of course, that's not the clinical reality, but that should have been the case in the ideal world. So we have come up with recommendations that have also been shown during during the meeting. Uh, and I think if you have a properly designed trial sufficiently powered, that effect is, of course, important and explains the placebo effect. But that's not really a problem in terms of analyzing the results and deciding on whether your drug is doing more than placebo or not. On that level, I completely agree with you. I think part of the issue there was, you know, if I'm going to have a 20% effect in a population and the placebo is five, that will do very, very differently on power calculation than if I'm going to have a 20% effect on a population I started 25. Where all this arose originally was in response to the issue of, are we trying to get our placebo rates as low as possible? And, you know, one answer was, well, yeah, because then you're managing the trial better. But the other answer was, you're not being as realistic to what you would like the patient to achieve. Mazen Nuruddin. I mean, my, my, the way I look at it, it's prepare for the worst and hope for the best. That's what they say, right? So that now we have a very clear data, although it's a little bit fluctuating, but we have multiple meta-analyses that showing what's the placebo response rate. So rather than going into the trial and try to design it based on a lower placebo rate, you can do 33% if you like, like what happened in the semi-trial, but I, I would not recommend that. I recommend what has been shown and Arun threw it out there as 20%. Our first meta-analysis showed 23%. And the second meta-analysis that Frank discussed in details, and by the way, a co-asked author on that publication, but let me give the right credit to the right people, which is the Singapore group by Mark Mathaya and Cheng Han that they did this nice meta-analysis. That's where it came from. It's 18% for regression for fibrosis and 22% for regression, actually. So I think that range is reasonable. And then, of course, after that, you have to leave it to mother nature and see what it comes. But now there are some semi-consistency in what you can put in a, in, on a power calculation. 